For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be going into detail on the first movie of the Disney era of Star Wars. Hi, I'm Rob Hyard of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during Season 3, when instead I'm going to be going through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. The Force Awakens had a big task. It needed to frame a new Star War, including establishing a new set of heroes and villains, while also touching base with our legacy heroes and reassuring skittish fans that Star Wars was going to be okay under new management. While the prequels had certainly been ambitious, they also had the ability to lean on foreshadowing a known future to connect to the audience emotionally. The sequel trilogy has never had that luxury. Personally, I think it's been wildly successful so far, and I'm deeply excited for the conclusion. But reasonable people can disagree, as long as they are reasonable about it and don't try to use SJW as an insult. One more thing. I still think The Force Awakens works really well as a metaphor for different kinds of fans, which is why I made it the main topic of my first episode. But since I've covered that, I won't be mentioning it again here. Okay, let's get started. You may recall that in the Return of the Jedi episode, I called out Lucas for having established a pattern for the opening crawls of a short, pithy summation sentence to start each one, beginning with, it is, then throwing that pattern out the window for Jedi with this rambling thing about Luke Skywalker. I was therefore delighted that The Force Awakens splits the difference by having its crawl begin, Luke Skywalker has vanished. I'm very grateful to whichever writer penned that, because it immediately establishes that we're in the hands of someone who has done their homework, even on what could be seen as a fairly minor issue. So once we're done with the crawl, and we've heard the names of the major factions, the First Order, the Republic, and the Resistance, we get a beautifully symbolic shot of a First Order Star Destroyer stabbing through a planet. In the same way the very first movie established a Star Destroyer as a sort of space bully chasing down Leia's much, much smaller ship, we are told visually that the First Order is about violence. You could stretch the point a bit, and also say that because the Star Destroyer is seen rising through the planet from the bottom of the screen, that it symbolizes a violent uprising, specifically. And this is important, because one of the things that distinguishes the First Order from the Empire is that the First Order is not the standing government. It's much closer to what in the real world we call a rogue state, similar to Iran or North Korea. We'll even indicate this by calling the boss of the First Order the Supreme Leader, a title most famously used in modernity by those two countries. We're also going to frame the First Order's actions as terrorist attacks. When the Death Star destroyed Alderaan, it was essentially the space opera version of flying a fleet of bombers to a country and dropping bombs on it, similar to the Blitz or Hiroshima. It had the trappings of war, even if in practical terms it was closer to the U.S. government bombing California or something. It also had Grand Moff Tarkin speaking bloodlessly about it as a necessary for an effective demonstration. But Starkiller Base strikes from a distance, after a fanatic gives a speech about a glorious future to a saluting uniformed mob. Tarkin was certainly evil, but his was a calm, technocratic evil. General Hux, on the other hand, is a spittle-spraying rage monster, and that tells us a lot about the organization he's a leader of. Hux is also surprisingly young for someone with the title General, and who apparently reports directly to the Supreme Leader. And if you look at the various First Order people operating consoles and reporting to Hux and Kylo Ren, they all look to me like they're in their 20s or so. In World, this suggests that the First Order is recruiting primarily from the ranks of people who are too young to remember what the Empire was actually like. Metaphorically, it also works as a way to make the new villains reflective of our current fears of subcultures like incels and the alt-right. And of course, the flat-out resurgence of Nazis, though this movie was made a bit before the worst developments on that front. Trump. I'm talking about Trump. In terms of what the First Order actually stands for, it seems to be right there on the tin. Order is the highest virtue, and must be fought for at the expense of all other concerns. Hux screams about this at the top of his lungs during his big speech, but we also see it in his exchange earlier with Phasma, when they're talking about Finn's defection. No prior signs of nonconformity? This was his first offense. So nonconformity is literally a crime to these people. But if human history has taught us anything, is that people are different from each other, in big ways and small, and absolute conformity is impossible. 
The movie illustrates this beautifully in one of the opening shots, where we see the interior of the stormtrooper landing craft, filled with rows of identical-looking soldiers in their white armor. But every time the ship rocks a little bit, every one of those troopers moves a little differently, swaying this way and that. It both foreshadows the defection that's about to happen, and illustrates the absolute futility and instability of the First Order's system. And speaking of that defection, let's talk about FN-2187, Finn to his friends. First, I don't imagine most of you immediately remembered that Princess Leia was kept in cell 2187 on the Death Star, so, uh, you're welcome. It seems like a good time to bring it up, though, since I saw a tweet hoping aloud that Finn would turn out to be a prince of some kind in Episode Nine, so as to complete the royalty Jedi pilot thing that both other trilogies have going on with their main heroes. If Finn was secretly the Leia all along, I'd be down with that. It's interesting to me that we don't actually know for sure when we meet Finn. He might be one of the troopers we see on the landing craft, he might not. It's not until his dying comrade marks his helmet with blood that we can identify who he is and he becomes our POV character for a while. That POV shift also comes with a change in camera work, with the camera getting jittery and with a lot of very sudden edits, giving us a window in how confused and overwhelmed poor FN2187 is right now. Also noteworthy is the fact that our POV character before Finn is Poe, who is actually the one who kills the stormtrooper that marks Finn. This makes Poe indirectly responsible for the moment of crisis that leads to Finn's desertion. Poe then goes on to give Finn his name, so these characters are strongly linked. Later, when Finn is walking through the desert, we see him leaving a trail of stormtrooper armor behind him like so many shards of the identity you've always had and never questioned until one fateful day when Oscar Isaac shows you a different way. We've all had that, right? Just me? He's also sheltering himself from the sun with Poe's resistance jacket, in the same way we all shield ourselves from self-doubt and recrimination under Oscar Isaac's dazzling smile and devil-may-care attitude. It's easy in this movie to see Finn as a coward, always trying to run further and further away from the First Order, but I think it's much more accurate to call him a traumatized hero. When he sees the scuffle in the trading post with the goons trying to steal BB-8 from Rey, he doesn't really know what's going on, but his immediate impulse is to run toward the danger, where the obvious path of self-preservation and not getting recaptured by the First Order is to not get involved. Finn is a born hero. But he's still traumatized by his experiences and upbringing, which manifests both in his need to run and also his need for the other characters. Growing up as a soldier in a cultish army, it's easy to see how he was likely both always surrounded by others and lonely. So when he meets Poe and Rey, he feels complete in a way he never had before. They're probably the first friends he's ever made. I also wonder if inexperience with friendship is why Finn at first pretty clearly has a romantic crush on Rey, taking her hand over her protestations, trying to impress her with his supposed resistance membership, and asking with too much interest if she has a boyfriend. This is all fairly immature, but that makes perfect sense. His social skills are not yet mature. We can see this immature worldview visualized when he finally confesses his identity as a former stormtrooper to Rey. In the scene, she is standing on a step above him, so he has to crane his neck back to look at her on the pedestal he's placed her on in his mind. Finn's basic problem through most of the movie is that he has definitely shed the, the one identity he's ever known, but hasn't yet figured out what to replace it with. This is externalized a bit in his constant scrambling to find a blaster. He knows how to contribute when he's got a gun, but he struggles in other situations. He can't find the tool Ray needs on the Falcon, he's intimidated by starship weapons, and he keeps losing fights with First Order guys who call him traitor because he's fighting with a lightsaber, a weapon strongly associated with an identity that doesn't even come close to describing him. But when he picks up a fallen stormtrooper blaster rifle on Takadana, he's immediately and incredibly effective. He knows how to stormtroop really well, it's the rest of his life he's having trouble with. So let's shift gears and talk about the best pilot in the Resistance, the dashing hero who will bring the rule-breaking roguery of Han Solo into this new era, the dreamboat eyes that are presumably attached to a human body, but to be quite honest, I'm not sure I've ever noticed, Poe Dameron. Poe is the impossibly handsome face of the Resistance, showing us what it means to be part of this movement. Now to be clear, when I first saw this movie, I felt like Resistance was literally just rebellion but we consulted a thesaurus. But there's actually a good in-universe reason for Leia rebranding the movement she's most known for. A rebellion, after all, is an uprising against the standing government but the First Order is no such thing. 
By calling her group the Resistance, Leia is declaring that the First Order is not legitimate as a ruling body. Surprisingly, I don't actually have that much to say about Poe that I haven't said in previous episodes, so I'll just point out that he gets tortured by Kylo Ren on the same sort of pointy bed in which Han was tortured by Darth Vader, and that the one spot of trouble he and Finn have while stealing a TIE fighter is that he didn't expect it to be tethered to the inside of the hangar, perhaps because the Resistance trusts its people not to be running off with the hardware. But speaking of Kylo Ren, let's talk about him for a bit. In the same way that Poe represents the Resistance, Kylo is kind of the avatar of the First Order, though he takes turns of that job with General Hux. The force powers that Kylo demonstrates in this movie feel very First Order to me. The way he freezes people and things in the air, exerting absolute control, and also probes into people's innermost thoughts without the tiniest shred of respect for their privacy or even humanity. It's also rather on-brand for the First Order that all this absolute control is a total front. Kylo Ren is a barely contained forest fire, wrecking everything around him in these giant temper tantrums whenever the universe doesn't conform to his vision. Uncontrolled as he may be, though, the narrative makes it clear that Kylo Ren is extraordinarily powerful. Stopping a blaster bolt in midair with a gesture is rather more impressive to me than Vader's trick of just blocking him with his gauntlet. We also spend the whole movie building up how powerful a weapon Chewbacca's bowcaster is, and a shot from it merely wounds Kylo. What's more, during his duel with Rey, he repeatedly hits himself on that wound, presumably feeding on the dark side through his pain. But I think my favorite bit of Kylo Ren imagery in this movie is on Starkiller Base, when Finn and Rey encounter him in a cold wood at night. Something about those details, that it's cold, that it's dark, and that we're in a forest, work together for me to put a fairy tale spin on the scene. Kylo Ren is the monster in the dark, or so he would have you believe. No, wait, my favorite bit of Kylo Ren imagery is when he's praying to Grandpa's hat to give him the strength to stand against the light. I love the moral inversion of this scene, that Kylo seems to be literally praying in a shrine to a relic of a dead, not saint, to protect him from salvation, of all things. It feels like the heavy metal band that wants you to take its Satanism very seriously. And that's kind of exactly what Kylo Ren is, a kid play-acting and being a far worse monster than he actually is. The natural opposite to a monster pretending to be worse than he is could be a hero who won't acknowledge how important she is. And that's the situation with Rey, whose name isn't technically synonymous with the light side, but at least combines with it well in Ray of Light. When we meet Ray, she's very much a child, albeit an extremely capable, self-sufficient one. But consider that we see her owning a doll, putting on a rebel pilot helmet apparently just for the fun of it, and taking a sleigh ride down a sand dune. This is a woman who, because of her horrible upbringing, had to grow up fast in some ways, but never got to mature, for lack of a better word. To be honest, there's quite a bit that the movie wants to quickly establish about Rey. Like Kylo Ren and Finn, we first see her in a mask. She's a cipher that we'll keep layering elements onto, a Tusken Raider-like figure stripping a spaceship for parts. There's also some vulture-like bird thing in the foreground right after we see her collecting junk from the Star Destroyer, as if J.J. Abrams was yelling, She's a scavenger! Get it? She's also a young woman in a desert without enough water, before she's a kid taking a sleigh ride. That's a lot, so let's unpack it a bit. The Tusken Raider connection is almost certainly not coincidental, given how much this movie owes to A New Hope. So we see this mysterious, maybe evil figure doing mysterious, maybe evil things. She's also descending when we meet her, going down into some kind of technological underworld. Then she takes off her mask, and she's a conventionally attractive young woman. She can't be evil. She's not wearing enough makeup to be evil. Oh, and she also doesn't have enough water in this desert, suggesting that whatever she's doing, it's probably not completely by choice. Finally, she has this kind of fun-looking sled ride down the dune, aligning her with childhood. We have, in the space of about a minute, gone from a vaguely sinister cipher to a dehydrated little girl. And while Ray holds the speed record for the transformation from sinister to sympathetic, our other masked figures, Finn and Kylo Ren, will make it as well. As I've noted before, the first words Ray speaks are an unsubtitled space language, which I'm going to call Jakuvian, and none of you can stop me. She goes on to demonstrate that she also understands the droid and Wookiee languages, in addition to space English, also called basic. I think the reason for all this linguistic achievement is to show us how ready and willing she is to connect with someone. She spent essentially her entire life either as a hermit or in an abusive household, 
and her need for some kind of family or at least community is palpable. Like Finn, she will latch onto her first opportunity to make a genuine friend and will never let go. One of my favorite bits of performance in this movie is when Rey and Finn, high on their shared achievement of shooting down the TIE Fighters and the Falcon, excitedly relay the story back to each other, each talking over the other and not caring. It's adorable. Contrast this moment of connection with what we see of Rey's home life. She toils away from meager rations, in an amplified version of the company stores that mining towns and the like used to use, to essentially trap their workers in remote areas by charging them all their pay for food and other supplies. There is no way to save up enough space bread to buy a flight off-planet. So the old woman that Ray watches cleaning components is absolutely the future she can expect. And when she gets home and eats her space bread, she does it with her back to the sunset, pointedly not replicating Luke's famous scene from A New Hope, as he yearns to find out who he is and what his place in the galaxy might be. Ray is too scarred by her abandonment to want to know anything more about her family, and she has given up on the idea of finding any other place for herself. And we heighten the tragedy of her life thus far when we get to talk Adana, and get to see how moved she is at the sight of a planet that isn't a shitty desert junkyard. I didn't know there was this much green in the whole galaxy. And here, surrounded by more living things than she's ever seen, Ray will make her monomythic descent into the underworld of Maz Kanata's basement. Which makes this a prime opportunity to talk about our substitute Yoda in this movie, Maz. Maz is our first example in the movies of a character who is definitely Force-sensitive, but also not a Jedi or Sith. This was so novel to me that it took me several viewings to realize that she actually does use the Force, and isn't just knowledgeable about it because she's over a thousand years old. The movie even makes a fair argument for Maz's powers being non-magical in nature, since she talks about when you live long enough, you see the same sorts of eyes and people. Which, sure, seems perfectly plausible for this kind of adventure fiction. She also has her special eye-looking goggles, which are great, to further accentuate slash explain her special relationship to eyes. But on the definitely Force-sensitive side of the coin, you have moments like her sensing Han entering her place before he has a chance to do or say anything, and closing her eyes to properly experience whatever she's sensing about Rey's destiny. For my last observation about Maz before I move on, I just want to point out that her joking, question mark, crush on Chewbacca might just be because, at over a thousand years old, even the oldest humans and similar species must just be embarrassingly childish to her. Chewie is around 230 by this point. Still well behind Maz, but I'll bet he's a very mature 230. Except that for some reason he's not. We have this bizarre scene toward the end, where a resistance medic is just incredibly condescending to Chewie about how that must have been scary, and he seems to agree, and I just hate it. It's funny, but lady, he's like five times your age, show a little respect. Talking about Chewbacca, of course, inevitably leads to a discussion of Han Solo. Han seems to have had a rough few decades, having lost his son, his spouse, and his ship, while we weren't looking. History isn't sure how to treat him either, since Finn knows his name as a rebellion general, and Rey knows him as a smuggler. Metaphoric value aside, these conflicting versions do a great job in forming the different backgrounds of our young heroes. But Han is obviously very famous, for various reasons, which is a trait that seems like a major disadvantage when you're trying to smuggle things or con people. The leader of one of the gangs that show up to collect their money from him observes that there's no one left in the galaxy for him to swindle, and that might literally be true if he gets talked about even on Jakku. So Han, in his own words, has gone back to the only thing he was ever any good at, but he's been too changed by his experiences to still be good at it. He's been one step ahead of disaster his whole life, so he didn't notice that disaster was gaining. And that's why this movie will be his last adventure. For sheer glorious metaphoric efficiency, though, you can't beat his initial exchange with Leia, which tells us almost everything we need to know about Han right now. In a movie where we've already seen Poe's jacket be a symbol of identity, Leia says to Han, same jacket. To which he replies, no, new jacket. Han has been presenting the same old image of himself to the galaxy, but that's a front. We'll talk a bit more about that when we get to the intertextual notes. But first, let's take a look at the symbolism at play in the movie's climax. I love that Starkiller Base is powered by its sun, and I love it for several reasons. 
First, it's the first time in the history of Star Wars movies that anyone has used an actual star for the purposes of warfare. Second, it gives us the lovely visual that Poe sums up for us. As long as there's light, there's hope. Over the course of the climax, it gets literally darker as more and more of the sun's power gets drained away, raising the stakes gradually but inexorably. Finally, Starkiller Base is a perfect distillation of what's wrong with the First Order's philosophy. Here they've taken something as huge and chaotic and untamable as a star and tried to cram it into a box they can use as a weapon. There's a shot of this vast cone of fire reaching out of the sun toward the tiny pinprick that is the planet, and this beautifully illustrates the problem at hand. The hubris required to think that this is a good idea is staggering, and of course the resistance winds up proving it by poking a small hole in the machinery, which is immediately destroyed by the instability. Rogue One tells us that the Death Star required active sabotage to give it an exploitable vulnerability, but Starkiller Base is self-evidently a brittle, doomed concept. As for the other side of the climax, the battle between Kylo and Rey, I'm interested to note that when Rey wakes up to see Finn fighting Kylo, her vision is a bit blurry, and the red and blue lightsabers almost look like one purple lightsaber, a fusion of the dark and the light. She then goes on to have a couple of moments during her own duel with Kylo where she's clearly tapping into her anger. We'll talk more about Rey's relationship to the dark side in the next episode, but it's also quite worth noting that her final victory in this fight is when she consciously calms herself, closes her eyes, and finds her center. She intuitively understands that the light is what's required to balance out the current situation, and that's how she wins. And isn't it interesting that just after she wins, the planet falls away between them, forcing her to spare his life? Obviously, this is also narrative contrivance so we can keep both of these characters around for a couple more movies, but a strict textual reading of these events leaves open the idea that the Force has plans for these two and separates them for a purpose. Okay, so the intertextual points in this one are a bit weird, because this is arguably the single Star Wars movie that makes the most connections to another one. Obviously, the plot about secret information in an astromech droid and a planetary-scale superweapon that gets destroyed by X-Wings is all very reminiscent of A New Hope and there are at least a dozen little Easter egg references as well. So I'm going to gloss over what I find the less interesting points of connection and talk just about one. Han Solo being this film's Ben Kenobi. Obviously in the original Star Wars, Han was our Force skeptic, talking about how the hokey religion was all simple tricks and nonsense. And that's why I find it really powerful to have him aboard the Falcon, where he first doubted Ben Kenobi, speaking in the voice of a devout believer, telling Rey and Finn that it's all true. But we're not done with making Han our Obi-Wan, because he also tells our heroes a, shall we say, simplified version of a Jedi massacre that leaves out some pertinent details, probably because they're too painful. Ben couldn't bear to tell Luke about his father murdering the Jedi, and Han can't acknowledge that his own son murdered the next generation of them. And like father like son, because Kylo Ren tries to pull the same trick in photo negative when he comes face to face with Han, telling his dad that Ben is dead and that Kylo killed him. It's just self-delusion all the way down with these people. The other intertextual point is technically probably cheating, but it's my show and I'm going for it. In the scene with the Rathtars, there's a moment where Harrison Ford is running toward the camera while a giant round thing is rolling toward him from behind, and I'm frankly embarrassed by how many times I'd seen this movie before I connected that to Indiana Jones. Before I get to my favorite part, I want to make it clear that I adore this movie, and I love all sorts of things about it, some of which I like for big intellectual reasons because I'm a big intellectual Star Wars fan, harumph. But my favorite part is 3PO talking about how Han probably didn't recognize him because of his red arm. I collapse and giggles every time I see this scene, and it's a great disappointment to me that the arm has been replaced in the scene at the end, where the Resistance folks are all waving goodbye to the Falcon. My other favorite part is more general. I love this movie for the weird elements in the corners. I enjoy that on Jakku we see a droid, I think, in a robe. Why does this droid wear clothes? Who knows? I like the big weird cyborg animal being ridden by the guy Ray rescues BB-8 from. In short, I like the elements of this movie that I didn't immediately understand from decades of Star Wars fandom. There's a certain satisfaction that comes with mastery of a topic, but it's easy to forget the pleasure of a mystery. And a big part of the reason the original movies became such a phenomenon was their stubborn refusal to explain everything. 
It's nice to be in a galaxy where I still have stuff to discover. And those are my thoughts about metaphors in The Force Awakens. But I'd love to hear what I missed. Talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit, or if you're a Chipperish patron, you can chat with me and the other Chipperish hosts in our Discord room. If you're not a Chipperish patron, you can rectify that at patreon.com slash Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you. Thank you.